everyone. My name is Jay Gill. I'm the owner and a compounding pharmacist at the Compounding Center in Leesburg, Virginia. On behalf of our pharmacy, I'd like to be the first to welcome you to our webinar titled Improving Patient Lives with Low-Dose Naltrexone. The science behind low-dose naltrexone, mechanism of action, and dosing will be dis discussed tonight. A little bit about the compounding center. We're an accredited pharmacy in sterile and non-sterile compounding. We're, listed, we're licensed in 12 different states. We support practitioners in many different specialties, such as HRT, dermatology, gastroenterology, and veterinary medicine. We have been helping patients and practitioners in our community for over 45 years. Our mission is to partner with practitioners, create custom medications, and help our patients get better. So tonight I'm thrilled to have Sebastian Dennison, a compounding pharmacist with PCCA, Professional Compounding Centers of America, our compounding support system in Houston. Sebastian will be sharing us sharing with us how compounded low-dose naltrexone can help our patients. By way of introduction, uh, Sebastian received his Bachelor of Science in Pharmacy at the University of British Columbia. He worked at Northmount Pharmacy in North Vancouver for 11 years, specializing in HRT, veterinary compounding, pain, and sports compounding. At PCCA, Sebastian is a clinical compounding pharmacist Sebastian works with both the U.S. and the Canadian core compounding training education teams. Sebastian also speaks at physician, pharmacists, and other healthcare professional education symposiums. He has recently lectured for the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine on nutrition and pain. So let's get started. The webinar is approximately 90 minutes long. We've set aside plenty of time to address any questions you may have after Sebastian and I present. Uh, please submit your questions to us through the chat function. And after the event, we will also be following up with you to help you solve any patient-specific medication issues that you may have. I'd like to thank you once again for your time tonight, and now I'd like to turn it over to Sebastian. Thank you. Uh, welcome. This is going to be fun. Uh, I, I was questioned on this presentation by a number of people that were like, you have a lot of content. And I said, well, yeah, but it goes in the direction that we need. And I promise I'll make it entertaining for you tonight. So um, buckle in. I'm going to go through some slides a little bit slower. And then once we pick up speed, you'll, you're going to get the gist of where we're going with this. So very excited about this. Um, there are some very recent slides, like we're talking actually June and, uh, sorry, April, May, and June of this year, we're getting new content. Um, and Jay didn't get a chance to hear this, but we actually were talking at the LDN Research Network Trust International Conference in uh, Scranton uh, just, just five weeks, four weeks ago, actually. Uh, and I picked up some new information there as well. So I'll share what, I, what I've learned and I'll share what we know. So on that, um, we always need to know where we're coming from and where we're going and what the difference is. And one of the biggest things that we, we, we don't talk about in pharmacy is sometimes we know that drugs work and they're very effective, but we don't necessarily know the mechanisms. And Dr. Bahari back in the late 80s, early 90s, recognized that there was this significant endorphin change when he was giving uh, fractional doses of naltrexone. 
And he started applying this to patients who were in need. And one of the big patient groups that he actually worked in was the HIV population. And this is right before we really saw this onset of the antiretrovirals and very effective um, helping keep uh, the immune system high. And it was this idea that it was mainly the endorphins that were really doing the big push. And so the idea was that there was this sort of rebound response when we, we antagonized the opioid receptor system that we got this proliferation of endorphins. And that was pretty cool. Um, but that was in the 90s. And in around 1993, 94, we really saw this sort of rise in widespread use of anti-retroviral uh, drugs. And naltrexone was this sort of orphan sort of, what do we do with it? And what we started doing in the community was applying it to patients who had other immune issues. And we were thinking like, hey, if they feel good, then they'll, they'll like if their, their endorphins go up and they think they feel good and they look good. And it's kind of like that Billy Crystal song where everyone's like, ooh, you feel good, you look good, and away we go. Um, and that was what we knew back then. But since then, things have changed a lot. When I say things have changed a lot, um, in the 90s, uh, the idea of going to Mars was still being uh, discussed, but uh, we didn't even know what a smartphone was. And I can't even imagine any of you have a smartphone that's older than an eight. Um, I don't even think they're supported anymore by Apple. And the very first smartphone was 2007, and we're making oxygen on Mars. And when we put our brains to the science and we have better tools, which we've really developed, honestly, since the late 90s and early 2000s, um, our understanding of the science is much, much better. And looking at COVID alone as healthcare practitioners, uh, in December of 2019, we had heard that there was three to five cases uh, in, in one small village, at, or sorry, one large village, so to speak. Um, but we didn't understand the scope of it. And within two or three months, we had shut down the entire world. But since then, as of January 2023, over 13 billion vaccinations have been given and almost 80% uh, of the U.S. has actually been vaccinated with at least one dose. So when we apply our brains to the science, things can actually change pretty rapidly, which is pretty cool. And so when we're talking about naltrexone, we, we have to discuss something called structure-activity relationships. And understanding the structure, structure of these chemical molecules gives us insight into how they can work. And once we understand the structure function activity, we really have a better understanding of how we can apply it into multiple systems, not just, hey, we think it works this way because we've got better understanding of where all the receptors are. Now, I am bringing back to you that there is this differentiation of chemical structure between the opioid drugs, the classic opioid being morphine, and these antagonistic drugs that have this uh, opposing or uh, sort of displacement effect, so to speak, like the, this is a competitive antagonist type drug. And we know the indicated uses of naltrexone and naloxone are for rapid detoxification of, of opioid overdose, but naltrexone also had a secondary uh, use. And our, and our original ideas of it sits in this one opioid receptor, the mu receptor, um, has literally become laughable because when we start looking at it, once we understand more, um, there's so many more receptors that it's actually impacting. And so we start getting better insights to how the drug worked because we knew it antagonized opioids, but we also saw this secondary indicated use that it was used for things like alcohol use disorder. And many, many prescribers started using it off-label for other uh, so to speak, addictive behaviors, gambling. Um, now we're seeing this rise of internet addiction and other uh, virtual uses, social media addiction, um, using it in things like PTSD. 
changes in other behavior actions, self-harm behavior in autistic patients, um, and those sort of, sort of effects. But these were still at these high doses, anywhere from 25 to 50 to 150, even upwards of 300 milligrams. Um, and what we first thought was it was in this opioid receptors. And one of the things that I have seen since I've been out of school is we now actually know that there's seven opioid receptors that have been distinctly identified, not just the three, mu kappa delta, we are actually zeta, epsilon, lambda, and iota. I like saying iota because it's small and it's fun. But, but we understand that these opioid receptors are actually behavior receptors. And that was our first insight is because we saw this um, enhancement of behavior when we had these endogenous opioids or opioid drugs um, and addiction became part of the problem, obviously, but, but it was behavior patterning systems mainly. But what we've also become to learn is that these opioid receptors were also found on immune cells. And there was this, uh, at the same time, recognition that opioid drugs in high doses could actually have an immunosuppressive action. And this immunosuppressive action actually stopped um, sort of the adaptive response. And, and so this, this idea started to form, well, maybe that's how it was helping the HIV patients is um, it was sitting in these opioid receptors and we would see this change in immune response because we could get a better adaptive response because we know HIV was effectively an, um, an immuno sort of compromise, the inability to appropriately deal with infections or mount an adaptive response or, or, or you would be exposed to uh, any small pathogens and not be able to deal with them. And you could succumb to, to very minor ailments, so to speak. But it wasn't just the new receptors that we found that opioids were actually working in, in immune cells with opioids. In fact, it was found that, and this is a recent paper in 2020, and we knew this before, but it's starting to tie it together is that opioids can actually have um, an, a sort of an inflammatory effect that it sits in the immune, uh, the TLR receptor and induces inflammatory response, but doesn't allow sort of the normal functioning of the adaptive response. And we see this in our clinical patients, um, onset of geriatric patients, high dose opioids, uh, inability to mount appropriate defense to uh, hospital-acquired infections, uh, high-use opioid abuse patients are getting weird infections. You can actually see the onset. But we can also see in a lot of high-dose opioid patients is that they get a higher inflammatory response. And so it's a dysregulatory effect of this drug in this receptor, and it causes this TLR4 activation. The TLR, you're kind of like, oh, okay, it's not a big deal. But to immunologists and to a lot of rheumatologists, and in fact, as all healthcare professionals, the TLRs are this group of receptors that are responsible for the initial response to pathogen or uh, pathogenic uh, sort of molecules. And so anything from lipopolysaccharides of bacteria to RNA or DNA proteins from viral products, flagella, um, any, of the, any of the other pathogenic type material that can be processed and digested by your macrophages literally presents it to the TLRs. And that is the initiation cascade where you can actually see different responses through different activation of these TLRs. And these TLRs have overlapping response, which is really cool because this overlapping, overlapping response induces your immune system to first mount an inflammatory effect and then cascading and amplification allows recruitment and appropriate activation for an adaptive response. 
the, the, the recruitment of your macrophages, your white blood cells, all of your appropriate eosinophils and, and, and your white blood cell activation and appropriate response becomes your adaptive immune effect. Now, why this is so important is because we see this across all species of vertebrates. We actually see it in invertebrates, in Drosophila, sea cucumbers. Um, and these pathogen recognition receptors are highly conserved and recognized to be uh, sort of this linchpin, so to speak, between um, the, the difference of being able to mount an, sort of an inflammatory response and a single type response to this complex, um, not only inflammatory, but adaptive. And this overactivation of TLRs can be problematic unto itself. And it's, it's just like some is good, more must be better is actually the exact opposite in your immune system. Some is good, more can be problematic. It becomes too much. And we see this over and over, but these TLRs across your cell, your immune cells are so adaptable and so subtle in their ability to distinguish between different molecules, but they still run through the same pathway. It's just this sort of expression of different cytokines that leads to this appropriate recruitment and activation of the rest of your white blood cell system. So it is important to understand that the, the, that the TLRs, although distinct and separate, have overlapping function, but truly are this dysregulatory response becomes problematic when it becomes kind of dysregulated and hyperactivated. And it leads to literally kind of this well-known molecule that is NF-kappa in the rheumatology world that is sort of the mother of all inflammation. And many rheumatologists, the first comment is if we can control NF-kappa, we have a much better chance of controlling disease or disease progression. Now, we also see this in everything from memory, cognition, neurodegenerative disorders, and so many disease states across so many patients. In fact, the inflammatory cytokines, you'll probably recognize them, TNF-alpha, IL-1 beta, IL-6, IL-8, IL-12, are highly recognized in many disease states. In fact, we do cytokine panels to determine uh, especially in rheumatology, NF-kappa, ANA plus the cytokine panel will kind of give you an indication of what's actually happening to the patient, where the disease is and its progression. But at the same time, we also understand that the appropriate regulation of TLRs can give you a better, greater adaptive response. Hence why we start to understand, now we're starting to understand how we could use naltrexone in HIV patients. We're giving them a better adaptive response. We're actually priming and modulating the immune system and saying, hey, this could work. And this is all just through these receptors. But once we start diving into the receptors and we understand they're functioning in so many disease states, everything from sepsis to cancers to, um, to pulmonary conditions to things like cytokine storms to organ dysfunction to all autoimmune disorders. In fact, this paper from 2019 discusses them and talks about this dysfunctional regulation leading to all of these disease states. In fact, we're starting to be able to tie it back to things like cardiovascular disease and uh, non-autoimmune disorders, but almost auto-inflammatory disorders. And we're going to get into that a little bit more. And this paper from 2015 was the first one to bring it up. And it says the TLRs are this sort of critical linchpin discussion point that if we can control them, we actually could get a better handle on the progression, sort of the initiation and progression of these disease states, depending upon where you were making your interventions. And this was actually a site of a lot, a lot of research uh, that's been going on, um, especially in the, in the pharmaceutical world and looking at better tools for, for helping patients with these autoimmune disorders. 
Now, if we actually look at autoimmune pathophysiology, and I'm not saying it's specific disease, I'm talking about pretty much all autoimmune disorders. Um, this article discusses that this sort of kind of inflammatory response that is uh, initiated, propagated, and sort of dysfunctionally activated over time leads to all autoimmune disorders. We can actually start to see these same cytokines that are being that are being discussed in the disease being responsible for the initiation and progression and activated NF-kappa, IL-1, IL-6, IL-8. And there's 17 specific inflammatory cytokines that we recognize that are dysfunctionally activated and uh, hyper-presented, so to speak, or hyper-produced. Hyper and this brings us to the next point, which is we're starting to see this shift is it's not just autoimmune, it's a spectrum. And we can actually see this progression of auto-inflammatory and minor presentation of, of symptoms all the way through to autoimmune disorder. And it's really and truly a function of time for these patients. And so if you have that dysfunctional uh, effect, it's just, they move along the spectrum until they actually get to the end and where you've got these sort of rare single autoimmune disorder disorders. Um, but the data itself is stunning because I believe as of 2019, there was a, there was a recognition, there was 167 million individual autoimmune diagnoses, according to, to sti sti statistics, but there was only 50 million individual patients, which means they have between three and four autoimmune disorders each. There's now a well-known recognized auto, uh, multiple autoimmune disorder syndrome that is now present in patients. They never show up with one. They show up with like the worst one is what brought them into the office. But when you examine them, you're kind of like, well, you also have uh, GI issues. You also have joint and muscle issues. You also have this uh, bully base of symptoms. But what brought you in is the first autoimmune disorder we give you. It could be everything from Hashimoto's to rheumatoid arthritis to Sjogren's syndrome, but there always seems to be more stacking behind it. And we are going to get into that. And I know it's not just inflammation. I know there's genetic factors. I know that there's a microbiome. In fact, there's a, a new paper that just came out and they talked about specific microbiome changes that can actually uh, set patients up with high stress disorders and genetic factors to be predisposed. We will get to that, I promise but it's the dysregulation of the inflammation that seems to be linchpin to this. Um, why do some patients who have the genetic factors get a disease, but others don't? Um, it could be a microbiome, which actually leads into inflammation. It could be other inflammatory issues that we're seeing in these patients. But the TLR4, which is so important and is so widely studied, seems to be this modulation pathway that I was discussing that so many people are focusing on because it seems to be the biggest and most widely understood, but most commonly implicated. And this receptor, when activated, runs everything runs right through it, and you have the same presentation of the TNF-alpha, the IL-1 beta, the IL-6, the IL-8, the IL-12, and this uh, TNF-alpha, like it just seems to be there. And so people are starting to be like, well, opioids cause it to be activated, and now we're talking about naltrexone, which has this opposing antagonistic effect. Well, it's not just the TLR4. In fact, TLR2, we can see this sort of dimerization and it has the same dysfunctional signaling cascade that could be involved in this autoimmune disease progression. Um, and we also see it in these TLR7, 8, and 9 specifically. And our, as we have better understanding and better science behind it, we're starting to be able to go, hmm, 
it's not just one. Remember I talked about the overlapping function? Well, now I'm saying the overlapping dysfunction of all of these can actually lead these patients down this pathway, which is part and parcel of the problem that we're facing. And so we've already talked about the TLR4 and, and morphine. Well, now you understand why I was talking about multiple receptors, where you now have seven opioid receptors, which have multiple functions beyond just behavior, everything from um, homeostasis to temperature, temperature regulation, GI, um, GI effects. Um, and then again, whoa, what's happened here? Um, we can also see, oh, sorry, I apologize. Um, we can also see this sort of effect of opioid receptors having effect uh, in hormone production as well. And so we're now at, let me say five plus, and what I've even described, the TLR2, the four, the, the seven, eight, nine, plus these seven opioid receptors, we seem to be having multiple places of effect because naltrexone doesn't just fit in one receptor and it doesn't have just one effect. In fact, what we're seeing clinically and in the literature starting to show up is it's more than a one trick pony. It in fact has significant opportunities. TLR4, it's well-documented where it fits with TLR4. In fact, that was one of our first clues where morphine was having this effect on the immune system is naltrexone fits in the TLR4 back, all the way back to 2008, replicated again in 2015. It's now widely accepted and published in multiple uh, journal articles that there is an interaction with TLR4. But what's really cool is the same papers that talk about the dysfunction of TLR789 are also starting to recognize that naltrexone fits into that TLR789 that were, uh, the TLR4 was not present in this experiment of these immune cells, but we still had the same reduction in inflammatory cytokines. TLR2 actually has this naltrexone effect. Now, TLR2 also dimerizes with TLR1 and 6. So you actually have three receptors in one because it's the TLR2 aspect that allows that interaction and that sort of um, binding effect. And with so many of these receptors that can be affected with naltrexone, all of a sudden we're starting to talk about multiple pathways to modulation or not immunosuppression. And that's the key part that I'm, I'm gonna discuss across this entire presentation. This isn't suppression, because if we had immunosuppression, the other TLRs would pick up the slack and you would have sort of a lull in the effect. And then all of a sudden you would have an overexpression of inflammatory cytokines that we see in other immunosuppressant activity. So what does this mean? Well, with these same TLRs that we see effect, maybe we can actually see this other effects in other disease states. And we started looking deeper and we started seeing that TLR is, isn't just, just in autoimmune disorders, it's in many chronic diseases, all the way from, like I said, pulmonary fibrosis and asthma, all the way out to the progression of tumors and uh, immune evasion by cancer cells. And so once we start pulling on these threads of, under, of, of science and understanding, we start being able to apply naltrexone into more and more patients. And that's what we're talking about tonight. Now, if it was just the TLRs and op opioid receptors, I'd be super thrilled. But there's also something called the opioid growth factor receptor. And Dr. Ian Zagon and his team out of Penn State have done 20 years of research into this. And they are the ones that brought this up. And they actually talk about the opioid growth factor receptor access um, being responsible for the control of tissue growth, everything from uh, healing wounds and being able to potentiate the healing of wounds to hypertrophic response to contractile tissue um, in, in scars, 
all the way out to metastatic growth in cancers. And so we started looking at this as, well, how will naltrexone fit in this? And, and Dr. Ian Zagon and his team have done an amazing body of work. And I want to say he's closing in on 100 papers that he's published with respect to this opioid growth factor receptor access and naltrexone effects. Um, everything from applications in ophthalmics to cancer research to uh, tissue recovery and regeneration. So big shout out to him and his team and just what they're doing up there is wonderful. Now, at this point, um, I've talked about 15 different sites that naltrexone can actually work in and have a modulatory response. We don't want to have a chronic constant response. What we want to have is this sort of modulatory pulse response. And this is why naltrexone can be dosed in very low doses in many different fashions based upon what the patient needs. But this goes back to saying, look, we don't necessarily have to understand the exact mechanism of disease, but we understand those are overlapping mechanisms in many of these diseases. And we now have potentially a modulatory molecule that can help these patients with this better adaptive response as opposed to this kind of chronic dysregulatory pro-inflammatory response. That seems like a big deal. And a lot of people say, yeah, that's a big stretch, but it's not us. It's not me saying this. It's not the pharmacist saying this. This is actually being reflected in the literature. As I mentioned, there's a lot more literature that's come along since 2015. This particular paper by Dr. Younger, he actually talked, like in this paper, when we talked about that uh, sort of autoimmune pathophysiology and all the inflammatory cytokines activated in NF-kappa and such. Dr. Younger in 2017 actually did a full panel, 24 inflammatory cytokines, pulled out the top 17, and lo and behold, in eight weeks at a low-dose naltrexone and fibromyalgia patients predominantly, we were able to see the, the reduction in this overlapping inflammatory cytokine cascade. Now, for those of you who don't have a photographic memory, I put it side by side so you could compare. But what we also saw was a decrease in CRP, a decrease in ESR, and resolution of many of the symptoms of inflammation, symptoms of joint pain, muscle aches, the inability to move, uh, that stiffness upon waking, and, and sort of that, that relief from uh, mobilization. Now, I, kn I know there's this seems to be a kind of a big jump for a lot of people. They're like, wait a second, are you saying this works in all autoimmune disorder patients? Um, what we're seeing is the pathophysiology is exactly the same. And we're just pointing out to the roots of the cause and saying we may have an immunomodulatory molecule in addition to what you're currently doing. Everything from chronic pain and migraines, and I'm going to get into some of those details lightly because I don't want to bore you to death. Dermatology, wound healing, oncology, traumatic brain injuries, and so much more, mainly because we're modulating the immune system to be an optimal response. Now, you're probably thinking, oh man, what is the cost of this? Well, we're going to talk about the financial cost later. That's the easy one. But I am first and foremost a healthcare practitioner. And I look at the cost, or not the cost benefit. I look at the safety benefit versus the, the, the risk profile. So is it safe? Is it going to be effective? What is our outcome? Um, and this was a really interesting study that we've, we had come across in 2019 that talked about almost 11, well, just over 11,000 patients. And this was an all-inclusive, all-patient study both sexes, all ages, all doses, all disease states, and they looked at the side effect profile only. And what we saw was the exact same uh, side effect profile of placebo, so sugar pills. Uh, tinnitus, issues with GI, issues with sleep disturbance, issues with very mild. 
And so we actually talk about this in a different way is that if we start seeing some of these disruptions in these patients, maybe our dose is too high. And that's the interesting part. We're using the side effect profile to say dosing. And so what do we look for? Most commonly sleep disturbances. People talk about waking up at two o'clock in the morning. That can be addressed by changing the dose time. Vivid dreams. Some patients love it. Some patients hate it. Uh, we can always move it to the morning or use that as too much. Many patients talk about anxiety. They're getting almost too much endorphins and they're just feeling unsettled and then they're feeling absent. That is an indication that the dose is too high. An exacerbation of their current symptoms or a headache are signs that their dose is too high. And that's how we dose titrate these patients. We start low, go slow, and dose, dose up to patient response, which generally is, I don't feel better, I feel worse. You're giving too much. And that's how easy it is. So let's go to the, the big granddaddy of, of uh, autoimmune disorders. Rheumatoid arthritis is number one on the list of 140, depending upon which list you look at, it's 100 or 140, but rheumatoid arthritis is number one. And what is it? Inflammation, progression of disease destruction uh, in the tissue, pain, tenderness, uh, loss of, loss of uh, strength, uh, mobility, that sort of weakness. And we always see these concomitant other issues. We see gut disturbances, dry eyes, dry skin. You might see vitiligo. There's a whole bunch of things that go along with this. Um, but that deformity in the joints and that progression is well known and, and easily, easily uh, diagnosed. But here's the interesting thing is that osteoarthritis, even though it's not considered an autoimmune disorder, has the same TLR dysregulation and activation just much earlier in the disease progression, and you don't see the same marked inflammation. But weirdly enough, osteoarthritis patients will tell you there's inflammation, pain, and it's, it's a different uh, tissue effect. But we're seeing the same pathophysiology in these patients. It's just a different outcome, and it's a dysregulated immune function. Kind of cool. But what's really weird is, as the pharmacist and as all of you healthcare providers know, is what's your current standard of care? NSAIDs, DMARDs, uh, corticosteroids for significant flares, and all these have their side effects. And those are the concerns that I have is, what are we doing to our patients as we're trying to fix them? What are we giving them? NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which are effectively immunosuppressant. They work through the, the prostaglandin synthesis. Um, our steroids, those are immunosuppressant. If we go too long, we have a whole host of problems, everything from pituitary and adrenal gland uh, dysfunction to weight gain, buffalo hump, moon face, uh, <laughs> issues with edema, um, and then immune dysfunction. Now, we use the steroids sparingly, but we do see a lot of patients fail on steroids. And so the next step is always what? DMARDs, which are disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, which are effectively immunosuppressants, just not as strong as the true immunosuppressants. But what do we do? Lots and lots of immune cell monitoring, white blood cell counts, blood monitoring, uh, and, and obviously liver tests as well. And these are nasty drugs. We can't even work with these in the compounding pharmacy anymore without special precautions in a specialized room because they're so toxic to non-patients. And that's the scary part is patients who are on these, we have to monitor pretty intently because of the health consequences. Now, what are we doing with this? We're not changing the outcome. What are we, we're not curing the disease. We're modifying the outcome for these patients. We're trying to reduce pain, reduce inflammation, improve quality of life. Um, and if this doesn't work, what do we do? Number one thing we do, we give them opioids. In fact, thankfully, we've actually seen a shift, but arthritis is the number one reason we prescribe opioids in America. 
which is terrifying because we know that we'll induce a more strong inflammatory response, which is in the title of the disease, itis, which is inflammatory in nature. Okay, so what do we do next? Well, we've now got biologics. And the biologic agents are really cool. The monoclonal antibodies, these are cool, cool drugs from the science aspect. They are sticky antibodies that take out inflammatory cytokines out of the system. And they target end products and they take away inflammatory response. But what do we see is dose escalation, cycling these drugs. I talked to a lot of rheumatologists and GI specialists and they go, yeah, two to three to five years. And then all of a sudden I got to switch because they completely fail in this drug. Overlapping function will give overlapping production of inflammatory cytokines. If you knock out a single inflammatory cytokine, you will have an upregulation of other inflammatory cytokines. That is the science because life will find a way. You have a dysfunctional problem high up in the chain, the end products, you're still going to have a buildup. Um, so what do we start doing? We started looking at the pro-inflammatory cytokines. So what are we going to do and how are we going to, how are we going to function those? We got after JAK inhibitors and JAK inhibitors are brilliant science. They're much higher up in the chain. What are they doing? They're looking at the utilization from everything from autoimmune to cancers. Um, we actually saw uh, some JAK inhibitors just recently being uh, authorized or indicated use for things like asthma, hint, hint. These are all inflammatory disorders, but it was the JAK stat pathway that should be giving you insight. This is the conversion of that Janus kinase in, enzyme. Um, it's sort of promoting that cytokine signaling. And when we started looking to the science, we saw that the TLR pathway initiated the cascade of your DAC stat pathway. In fact, they're so overlapping that if you modulate your TLRs, you will decrease that amplification. The JAK stat pathway is actually an amplification uh, linked to the TLRs across the board. So when we start looking at this, um, again, we go back to the TLRs, like how do we modulate these? Well, I'll try some. Now, NF-kappa, and this is for rheumatologists, is this is the central player. And I've had many rheumatologists say to me, if you can fix NF-kappa, you actually have this ability to fix many autoimmune disorders because truly that's the parent. And so we don't want suppression, we want regulation change. And so we started looking at the science back in animal models. So of course the mouse model, they have the exact same TLR presentation, overlapping function, preserved and conserved. And that gave us insight into the functionality in humans. Many physicians and uh, practitioners looked at this and they said, if it works in mice, it should be working in humans. The biggest thing here is dose response because mice have a much uh, different metabolic metabolic rate. And they also have very different doses. The doses that they used here, they just wanted to prove that you could actually change that NF-kappa pathway and change that uh, regulatory expression. Uh, and it worked. But we're starting to see it at lower and lower doses, but we're starting to see it also being uh, replicated in humans. And what we are seeing clinically is now reflected in data that's actually being published. We were seeing this back way before 2019. Um, the patients weren't refilling their other arthritis drugs. They weren't needing as many of their opioids. They were dose reducing on their biologics. They were dose reducing on their DMARDs. They were dose reducing on their NSAIDs, better quality of life, slower disease progression. And that was not us. We saw it clinically, but now we have the data to back this up. More and more studies are coming out. Uh, Dr. Paul Monarch, uh, he actually did publish this. The number of patients enrolled was not sufficient to show a difference, 
but the patients that did get the drug did report an improvement. They just didn't have the significant power that we were looking for. They were hoping to enroll 60 patients. I think they had 17 in total. Um, but rheumatic diseases, we actually have this paper from 2023. Yay! Um, these are seven patients. Again, we saw this improvement, but no serious side effects were detected. Um, and this could be a promising and safe effective. If you want to expand your scope, you can try it. It is safe to go with other medications. That seems to be the biggest thing that we're asked when the autoimmune and rheumatology world, is it safe to combine? And we don't see any sort of uh, clinical contraindications. What we see is this improvement that the question is, can we dose decrease with the other drugs that have the potentially harmful side effects? And the answer is very much so. Um, what we do see, and this is a very important discussion, is finding the right dose for the patient because when we get the dose wrong, we can see an exacerbation, so too high of a dose. But if we find the right dose in this paper from, again, different paper, 2023, they're doing everything, fibromyalgia, MS, Crohn's disease, um, we're actually sort of seeing this nice outcome for these patients at appropriate doses. And this is where Jay and the compounding pharmacy comes alive because you can't do it with one size fits all. Um, inflammatory bowel disease, it's right in the title. Crohn's, chronic, uh, chronic inflammation in the GI tract, ulcerative colitis, this is in the lower intestinal tract. Uh, again, we see the same thing, systemic inflammation, overexpression of specific interleukins, toll-like receptor overactivation. Um, and you see this concomitant overlapping effect of inflammation throughout the whole system, everything from uh, pain and muscle, pain in muscles and joints to skin issues to, to, to take your pick. Um, and it's presenting in all these inflammatory bowel disease patients and ulcerative colitis patients. Going way back to 2007, all the way up to more recently, we see the same information. Once we initiate, we see this induction of, of decreased symptomology, induction of remission in many patients. Again, this is a, a controlled dose, a very tightly controlled dose, and I disagree with it because you see about 30% of patients don't get a response. And it's a dose response issue. They weren't getting enough or they were getting too much. We don't know. Dr. Zagon, again, involved in these papers. Um, under patho, um, pathohistology, you can actually see the improvement in the tissue. Uh, in children, they were looking at safety and efficacy. And they're like, not only it's safe and uh, safety, um, and we induced this clinical remission in 25%, but 67% had a clinical response. Um, and they were standardizing the dose. If we individualized dose, we would have had higher outcome numbers. This paper from 2018, same thing. 75% of the patients we saw improvement, 25% in, into full remission. Um, this one from February of 2022, again, we're seeing this remission. In addition to biological and immunomodulatory therapy, the outcome of this was decrease in the biologics and the suppressants. And guess what? Overall health increased. Uh, this one, again, another paper for 2018, um, retrospective study, they looked at these patients who were already on other medications and they saw the same reduction in all other medications while maintaining on naltrexone. The fallacy of both of these two studies from the same author, and honestly, was they didn't have a control. Well, the retrospective analysis was the control group was what they were currently on. They didn't give placebo, I know, but in this case, we know what placebo does is escalating doses and chronic uh, flares. So this is where we are. Um, clinical case studies, we see everything from Sjogren's syndrome, which is increasingly difficult to treat, um, to stiff person syndrome, which is just wildly rare, um, but it's now being recognized being more and more being uh, overlapping potential for Parkinson's, and that's a different discussion. Fibromyalgia, 
Um, this was kind of the granddaddy of where we were all doing it. MS and fibromyalgia back in 2000, 2001 was where we were using it. Not a lot of studies until recently. This is from February of 2022. We saw this improvement of LDM being not only safe, but also having this overlapping effect with depression. What was really cool is that we saw this decrease in other medications. So not only improvement, uh, max dose of 4.5 milligrams, but we reduced the other medications that they were on from the clonazepam and huge reduction in trazodone. More importantly, the gabapentin. I don't know if you've ever seen a patient who's on high doses of gabapentin. They barely remember their own name. So when we get them onto these lower doses, it's a huge deal for them. Improvement of quality of life, improvement over depression, improvement of, of, um, of symptomology. Um, these are more papers that we've seen, and this is actually a really... <laughs> It, we're coming fast and furious with literature now. Um, Lotus naltrexone, safe, effective, decreased side effect profile, improvement in symptoms. Um, this one, we've seen the dose expansion from 0.8 milligrams all the way up to 9 milligrams. Historically, Lotus naltrexone has been 1.5, 3, 4.5. Recently, the LDN conference, we have put a dagger through the heart of that terrible uh, titration schedule. And we've now said 0.5 titrate up slowly to patient response. It can be once daily, it can be twice daily, it can be even three times daily, depending upon the patient and how it works. More importantly, adverse effects. 11% of the patients, more importantly, we can address that with both dosing and timing. Uh, ALS. This is just a wild discussion because we saw this improvement of quality of life of these patients. Um, this wasn't even in a normal discussion that we were having, even about autoimmune disorders. We know that there's genetic and autoimmune and sort of an immunodysregulatory function. Um, and these patients literally get trapped in their own body. But what we saw is uh, this overall improvement and the patients were better off having B12 or B, B vitamins and naltrexone. Uh, we didn't change the course of their disease, but we, or the final position of their disease, but we changed the trajectory and the speed as well as their overall happiness and quality of life. Um, migraines and pain. Um, we know migraines are inflammatory. Uh, there's an inflammatory component. In fact, we see this sort of chronic inflammation in the trigeminal nerve plexus. Uh, they blow off all these vasoactive peptides and you get this mass vasodilation and people are wandering around with massive migraines and the aura effect. Naltrexone is not a rescue. You can't give naltrexone today to abort a migraine, but you can now use it to prevent and decrease the frequency and severity of these migraines. This is actually a really good one because again, it talks about few side effects, decrease uh, in overall use. Again, I'm going to say it's dose specific. Our migraine patients were between half a milligram up to about two, two and a half milligrams. If you see an exacerbation or induction of migraines, your dose is way too high. You have to bring them down. Again, TLR4, that is one of the receptors. Again, it's in the trigeminal nerve plexus and away we go. Dermatology, whew, this is huge. Um, we, we're not only talking about everything from Haley Haley disease and like uh, just different disease states, but eczema and uh, psoriasis, atopic dermatitis. Um, this particular paper dose was set at 4.5 and the patient improved just in a few weeks. Um, these are the published studies. What we're seeing clinically and anecdotally is just like hundreds of patients this is being replicated in because it works so well. This particular patient, he's got 30 patients enrolled in a current study. I think they're uh, pushing it now. Uh, we're trying to get all of the data so we can publish. This particular uh, patient is a pharmacist as well. 
He'd been trying everything for his rosacea for years. Finally, he started maltrexone and within 28 days, he had noticed an marked improvement. Uh, 45 days, he was thrilled with the outcome. He was just like, oh, I'm so happy. Uh, he also noticed that his gut improved and his overall mobility had improved. Darrier disease, I had to go look this one up. But again, this is another recent paper that's saying like, look, we, we see this improvement, but there's also this lead time. And that's the other part that we're going to discuss about dosing is we can't say that this is an immediate response. We have to give you at least three months out to six months just to see what the full response is. Wound healing. Uh, Dr. Zagon and his team, they were focusing on the OGF receptor. They did this in diabetic and non-diabetic rats. And then they went type 1, type 2 diabetic rats, and they noticed that this improvement in wound healing. This was back in 2011 through to 2014. And I said, you know what? This is way too interesting. We got to start doing this in patients. So we did. Uh, Dr. Or, uh, pharmacist Jack Dunn and his team, they got together. They were actually able to help wound healing and surgical scar healing within weeks of treatment. Uh, replicated again, 36 stitches. This is after four weeks of treatment. This particular patient, we didn't count the number of stitches. This was post skin graft. The two pictures, these are 10 days apart. And this is with a topical uh, BID dosing of naltrexone at 0.1%. After the full two weeks, we went down to once daily. And then after another two weeks, we discontinued. We just use a, a, a silicone scar base called Practicil. Uh, this patient, you wouldn't even know how to surgery. Her surgeon was just like, oh, what do we do here? The GP was like, a little bit of naltrexone and Praxil works wonders. Um, this patient is thrilled. So she was 67. Um, I'm sorry if you're eating dinner. This particular patient, you can see how, uh, how significant this non-healing wound was. Um, this was after six months of treatment at a wound care clinic. They weren't getting the traction they were looking for. This particular patient had a bariatric surgery and then went down to Mexico to get cheap uh, resectioning because they had too much flappy skin. Uh, this is what happens when you go to Mexico and get cheap surgeries. You end up with nasty, nasty wounds. After six months, they said, don't let it get infected because this could kill you dead. Uh, you can see the time frame change. So from February of 2022, she walked into a wound care pharmacy. Uh, we were doing topical uh, naltrexone, EGCG, a little bit of phenytoin, uh, and some arginine. And by May of 2022, this is about the same size as a dime. I don't even think it was that big. After May, we never got any more pictures because she just stopped coming back. Uh, this is an armpit. Uh, this is a um, graft that it would be a skin graft. There was an infection. Once we resolved the infection with a little bit of povidone, iodine, and zinc, um, once that cleared, we were started doing naltrexone. You can see the difference from March 20, um, well, end of March, so beginning of April through to May. Um, after middle of May, there was nothing else to show. So um, changing gears. Jay, you're probably like, are we seriously going to get through all of these? Yep. Sebastian. Yes. We've got a few questions. Do you want to address some of those now or do you want to wait till the end? If it's okay, could we wait just so I can get through some of this? Yep. Okay, we can. perfect. Um, we get this question a lot because we're starting to see it used widely in fertility protocols. Um, is it safe when the patient gets pregnant? Uh, Dr. Boyles was able to put together a study. He had 120 enrolled in the control group and 120 uh, or 117 in, or no, 120 treated 117 control. Um, his, this paper from 2013 said 10 milligrams is safe in pregnant women. Um, but what we saw from Dr. Boyle's study is that there may be an over, um, an 
an overlapping benefit, not only to the mother, the longer gestation period, the less complications, but a conference of benefit to the offspring because we saw earlier to milestone function, better well-adjusted babies and less uh, health issues in the first six months. Uh, ovarian function, PCOS, these are again, TLR-mediated, sometimes autoimmune disorders and dysfunctional regulation. Um, we saw both naltrexone in high doses and low doses having positive effect in these patients. Inflammation in tissue structures, dyspneuria, uh, allodynia, vulvodynia. Um, lots and lots of distress. We're using this a lot in postmenopausal women who talk about this tissue sensitivity and sort of inflamed. It's like fire down there um, and it's working. Andrometriosis, TLR4 autoimmune disorder, mediated effect. Uh, we started using naltrexone in these patients. One of the TLR4 variants actually is considered a genetic risk factor for Italian women. And so we know that this sort of hyper-regulation can also be um, genetic in response as well. Very little goes a long way. And so this predisposition, uh, we started looking at this as, as an opportunity to treat. Um, where we're starting to see this treatment go is things from aging. Uh, this is my lovely daughter. This is a picture of her at about age six to seven to the age of 16. Um, and we're all going that way. But what's scary is after the age of 35, we all start seeing this increase in inflammation. In fact, it's a subclinical sort of syndrome, but it sets us up for all the risk factors in the future of all of these chronic disease states. In fact, this inflammaging is a new term that we've seen since about 2021. Um, and we started seeing these age-related diseases, everything from cancers to pulmonary fibrosis to, to, to like take your pick. We also see this sort of uh, cross-section of women who are going through menopause at that age range are also more susceptible to autoimmune disorders. And so is it a precipitating factor, including the stresses of going through menopause and inflammation chronically activated? Yeah, take your pick. There's a lot going on here, but we are seeing this also discussion with endocrine related cancers that are responsible at that onset of that sort of chronic inflammation. So again, we know it's multifactorial, but we also know that that tumor microenvironment is inflammatory in nature, which drives it quite quickly. Um, and again, these aren't my words. These are, these are the current papers that in the current paradigm of thinking that if we can control some of this inflammation, we may prevent that sort of initiation and sort of um, uh, rooting and then that uh, immune um, avoidance to the point where it becomes metastatic in nature. And so again, um, lifestyle can be a point, age, uh, different genetic factors, but again, they're all pointing back to that sort of inflammatory chronic dysregulation. So it's not just the diseases that you see present uh, in the air, geriatrics. It's also a, a cascading event in all cancers. Um, again, that inflammatory response, it's a target for treatment. So what, why are we using the biologics and the jacks in that? Because we're going after those inflammatory components or the, that signaling amplification pathway. Um, but again, if we can control it and modulate, we would start getting some traction. And again, we see the same TLRs activated and dysfunctionally activated, not just in the autoimmune world, but in cancers, in dermatology, in wounding. Like again, we're just seeing it over and over. This was, a, was just mind blowing to me because this had not been brought to my attention before, but we're also seeing this overlapping negative response of opioid receptor activity in cancers. Um, almost being an initiation and um, sort of, of metastatic and overexpression of, of cancer cells. So what I mean by that is 
uh, once we see this upregulation in opioid receptors in cancer cell, we almost see this initiation and rapid proliferation. In fact, you can see it clinically very quickly when you look at hospitalization and surgeries where they use induction of anesthetics as well as opioid medications for induction of anesthesia. Um, you will actually see this sort of uptick in proliferation of metastatic lung cancer if it hasn't been appropriately fully uh, removed. But you'll also see it clinically in your patients when you give opioid medications for pain management in stage four palliative care, all of a sudden the cancers just pick up and, and they run through the patient. And now you know why. It's because the opioid receptors are actually causing this um, hyperproliferation and metastatic growth. And I put these papers up here because I'm not saying it, it's now known in the literature and it's something that you should be aware of. And so we know that the OGF receptor access, when it's uncoupled, you can actually have this sort of hyperproliferative metastatic growth. So it's a twofer effect. And again, we're talking about where we can have naltrexone have this benefit. And so if we can actually sort of we can influence cell growth by using naltrexone in appropriate doses, and we can actually mediate and potentiate cancer therapies or interventions. And this is actually becoming uh, better studied and more widely known. And it's not just us. In fact, we're seeing uh, some of the literature starting to reflect looking at poten or, or potential benefit in patients who have difficult to treat cancers, um, pancreatic cancer, liver cancer. In fact, all cancers, this is a paper that was written by a couple of oncologists and they said, look, we need to be looking at naltrexone as an opportunity to mediate this response. Um, Dr. Paul Anderson, the LDN Research Trust discussion, he, he said he's using doses up to nine milligrams in cancer patients divided up to TID in a pulse therapy fashion. So Monday to Friday, you give naltrexone, Saturday, Sunday, you're off. And he's having these stunning, stunning outcomes. And he's actually on the cusp of publishing some of this, some of this information. This paper from 2022, um, again, they're talking about this sort of modulation effect. And so not suppression and not uh, overt excessive amounts, uh, but finding the right chemotherapy and the right, right combinations. Again, no contraindications, no overlapping, no, um, no concerns with use of LDN in the oncology world. Um, this one blew my mind. We're using CBDs uh, for a lot of pain control, sleep, anxiety. Um, but when you combine it, CBD with LDN, you can improve the uptake of the chemotherapeutic drugs that you are currently using uh, in your interventions. So that blew me away. So if we actually uh, stack the, the treatments, we can actually see improved outcomes for the patients. And so we have to look at it as not just the TLRs. We can't look at it as just the opioid receptors. We actually have to look at it, the opioid receptors, the, the, the TLRs, and the OGF receptors. And we can regulate the sort of effect and improve the adaptive immune response. We give for patients a longer, better fighting chance. Um, many times what we see is this sort of stalling out of growth of the, of, of the cancer cells. Um, particular patient, he is now four years out from his pancreatic cancer diagnosis. And the reason I bring up this particular patient is he's a pharmacist. Uh, he said it's okay to share. His father died of pancreatic cancer. His brother died of pancreatic cancer within three months of discovery. Uh, he is now four years out and his main intervention was the initiation of LDN uh, and alpha lipoic acid. And the more interesting discussion of this is his oncology team way out there in, uh, sorry, in Tennessee, uh, their exact comment was, I don't know what you're doing, but keep on with it. And we want to, we want to see how you go. Uh, they weren't expecting it. And his tumor is still the exact same size. So pretty cool. 
Um, peripheral neuropathy is induced by chemotherapeutics. We actually see this enhanced TLR4 activation tissue destruction. So neurological destruction through mediated through TLR4 activation. My recommendation is the use of naltrexone, obviously in the cancer patients, but in patients who are post-chemo who have undergone surgery, we can use it to prevent some of those nasty side effects of those drugs. Um, cardiovascular disease, we actually see the same angiotensin receptors, TLR4 hypertension, uh, the, the sort of chronic activation. What we see is cardiovascular disease is too much inflammation, elevated ES, um, ESR, elevated CRP, risk factors, high um, lipodensity proteins, are off the charts, triglycerides are dysregulated. And what do we work about? Macrophages eating the cholesterol and becoming uh, activated and sticky. Uh, again, we can mediate that with the use of naltrexone. More importantly, we can improve heart cardiovascular function. Pretty cool. Uh, we talked about neuroinflammation and pathogenesis of neurological conditions. Um, TLR4 mediated through to the NF-kappa IL-1 beta, not just TLR4, but 2, 6, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we're also seeing this now in concussion protocols, and that's where a lot of research is coming out, is we understand the mechanisms because with repeated concussions, we see the same outcome as age-related neurodegradation is repeated concussions early in life, uh, chronically, you have almost this acceleration. Um, we're now seeing clinically a lot of uh, neurologists are using low-dose naltrexone in early uh, concussion protocols, as well as repeated concussion protocols with this dysfunction and concerns. So very, very cool because the science is there. Um, we're doing it in mice and it's working. Well, we're doing it in humans clinically. I just had to show you the evidence where we are. Um, but what's really cool, I talked about all the opioid receptors, uh, all the TLR receptors. Um, and this one would just blew me away is non-refractory of uh, epilepsy in pediatric patients. This was done in Egypt and they turned around, this, this was in 2021. They're like, let's throw naltrexone into the mix. Um, we saw this clinical improvement and we saw this um, stabilization of their epilepsy. And so we know that there's multiple mechanisms up in the brain that we're, we're affecting in a positive fashion. We're now seeing uh, stroke. Uh, and traumatic brain injury, obviously, but stroke outcomes, um, they're saying that we may actually see this improvement in a regenerative effect of naltrexone in, in brain tissue. It's <sighs> a lot, isn't it? Um, but I want to just kind of pause for a second because this is probably the biggest topic. I already talked about COVID and all the vaccinations, um, but since 2019 and 2020, we've also discovered that the TLR the TLR system is highly involved in the uh, initiation and pathogenesis of all COVID patients. In fact, the TLR4 is the most well-known and activated that leads to the same cytokine storm that we see in everything from SARS to toxic shock syndrome, et cetera. Um, again, it's running through the exact same systems that we've already talked about, TLR4, 7, 9. In fact, we see this onset of autoimmune-like disorders as a result of COVID infection. It doesn't have to be a severe infection. It can be a mild infection, but again, we're almost speeding up the process of their aging and their, and their immune status. Um, we've known about TLR4 for quite a long time. This was already back in 2020. It seems forever ago. Again, 1,6, which dimerizes with two, TLR4, TLR, uh, we, we see this in many different systems. Um, but this is a paperback from 2020, and they said, maybe we should be using a low-dose naltrexone. And what we saw clinically was our low-dose naltrexone patients may be afflicted by COVID. They weren't as severe, and they recovered faster. Um, I actually asked one practice. They have a couple hundred patients. 
They did have patients who were uh, significantly affected by COVID, um, hospitalized, not succumbed. They didn't lose a single patient in their entire practice if they were on low-dose naltrexone prior to getting COVID, which was stunning to me. Um, but we figured out why. And this, this paper blew my mind, and I'll show you the full reference in just a moment. But we found that the ACE2 angiotensin converting enzyme receptor complexes with um, COVID is interrupted by naltrexone. So you still might get COVID, but it won't spread as rapidly and you won't have such proliferative effect and you won't have that TLR4 activation leading to that sort of complete cycling of the, down the drain. Um, TLR7, 8 uh, implicated, TLR9, this is the outcome where you're having these autoimmune-like disorders uh, and this sort of chronic activation. Um, and it's just so many parts of COVID where you see this overlapping functionality and in so many different systems are affected and it goes through the entire system and you can't really pinpoint what's going wrong. You just know something's wrong. And what we're saying is this immune dysfunction again, and this dysregulation, everything from patients who have loss of sense of smell to fatigue, to malaise, to memory and cognition, feels like you've just sped up their entire life in a short period of time and you're seeing everything go wrong. Um, cardiovascular issues, uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Again, that's running through the angiotensin four symptom. And we talked about that with respect to hypertension as well as the TLR4 activation and dysfunction. So we're starting to see that overlap of COVID also exacerbating pre-existing conditions. Um, and kind of take your pick of which one, right? So. We started using naltrexone in them and the information started popping out. This is blood clots. We actually saw this with post-COVID syndrome uh, patients. This is a paper that made a huge splash last August. I don't know if you saw this. Um, six of seven parameters, they started seeing recovery within three months, whereas uh, non-treated patients were out to 18 months. The Nature Reviews in Microbiology actually listed naltrexone as a recommended intervention for patients with fatigue, memory, or other issues. It's right there down at the bottom. But this leads us into another product called Methylene Blue. And I can't go without talking about this one because we're seeing so much requests around Methylene Blue in post-COVID-19 patients. Energy, memory, cognition, uh, recovery, sort of all of these systems, this Methylene Blue, methylene blue complements what we're seeing in naltrexone. Um, so if you're treating post-COVID patients, you should be looking at methylene blue. If you're treating autoimmune disorder patients, we're seeing this overlapping functionality. Um, and why are we talking about this? Because when you're talking about compounding, you, you're already stretching what we can do for these patients. Um, and this is probably the hottest thing that we, we can recommend is this sort of uh, co-therapy in these COVID patients mainly to see this recovery, mainly to see this cog cognitive response and energy response with methylene blue. It is important to get, to get the dosing right of methylene blue. Um, and this is worthwhile of its own webinar, but I, I promised I would mention it to Jay. I'm like, they need to hear about this. Um, and we're seeing it for everything from wound healing and pain and this overlapping functionality. And it actually makes naltrexone work better or naltrexone makes methylene blue work better. I don't know, take your pick. Um, it is important to get a compounded version, never send them to the internet, never send them to uh, Amazon. Um, many times they have heavy metals and other impurities, which can actually exacerbate their symptoms. 
uh, aluminum, arsenic, cadmium, lead, mercury, like take your pick. It can, it, industrial grades can be really, really nasty products. I wouldn't even I wouldn't even use them for film development. Um, so finding something that's from a compounded version, which I know Jay brings in our product and it's extremely pure, which actually makes it work better at lower doses. So there you go. Um, here's a couple of formulas, which we do see people get excited about. They are doing oral rinses. It does turn the tongue blue. So that's kind of a fun one. Um, but we're, I'm, I kind of got off track there because um, I got excited, um, but, we're also seeing patients, when we talked about COVID, we talked about this lung involvement and them drowning. And that led us to start thinking, does naltrexone have a, an effect on lung tissue? And once we start looking at the TLR biology in lung tissue, we start seeing, man, we were missing the boat. And this isn't something you know, anyone was talking about. Um, this was presented on at the LDN conference this year. Um, and this changed a lot of people's faces when we started talking about this. We see the overlapping mechanisms in so many disease states, everything from cystic fibrosis to lung cancer to uh, pulmonary, uh, to uh, reversible airway disease like asthma, um, to, to, to pulmonary fibrosis, idiopathic or aging lung, so to speak. Again, the same players are present in that same sort of uh, degradation. And we see this again, not just the pathogenesis of the lung, but in all systems. Uh, cystic fibrosis, this TLR4 hyperstimulation leads to exacerbation of disease. If we can modulate, this would be a great way to control cystic fibrosis exacerbation. So it's just finding the right dose. That seems to be it. And that discussion that we get to really goes back to everything else we've been talking about. Because... Um, we don't know how everyone's immune system is working, but we do know that we can see how the patient does based upon the dose. Because when I get asked this, they're like, shouldn't it be in the water? Everyone should be getting it. We should just give it to everyone. Um, it wasn't me who suggested this first, but and it wasn't a, a common question necessarily back in 2009, but it was postulated because they recognized that we could kind of offset a lot of these sort of uh, pre-existing um, health factor markers. Um, and we could see everything from alleviation to depression using the endorphin system and uh, improving their overall well-being, improving their quality of life, decreasing inflammation, avoiding that um, sort of inflammation effect. Um, and Dr. Zal Zala, who presented at the LDN conference, and this was his study, he actually said over the last five years, he's seen an improvement of aging population health um, or sort of offsetting those sort of concerns of aging, so to speak. Um, and his paper is just being published this month, or sorry, August. Uh, expect to see it actually fully out there. And they, they found all of the criteria that they were discussing was improved, and they were very happy with the outcome as the patients were. But we can't put it in the water, because if we put it in the water, then everyone's going to get variable dosing that's probably going to be too much for them. Um, and when we talk about dosing, there's so many variables here. Uh, the big ones are genetic variation from everything from the absorption ability and the ability to convert it into the active metabolite to the TLR receptors and their variability and how they present in different disease states. In fact, you can see genetic SNP variation that can lead you to specific disease outcomes. Um, I talked about it with the Italian women and their, their sort of preponderance to endometriosis, but we also see this in everything from Hashimoto's grave disease, type 1 diabetes, um, to things like um, susceptibility to, again, endometriosis. There was a couple of others here that I pointed to, rheumatoid arthritis. 
uh, lupus. Um, we're seeing this in different patients across different TLRs. Um, and we can see this var variation just in the TLRs. We also saw this in opioid receptors. So the opioid um, SNPs, everything from addiction to uh, sensitivity to opioid medications. Um, and, and what we started seeing there is this sort of pattern of, oh, dosing variability of these drugs can also lead to outcomes. Well, what does it do for disease progression? And here we are. And again, that ACE2 receptor polymorphism, you've seen your patients, COVID-19, um, some patients get it five times, some patients who are exposed to it don't get it at all. And again, it goes back to that ACE2 polymorphism receptor complex. Um, sometimes COVID doesn't bind to it. And this is why different variants attack different people. Some patients got every variant, some patients got no variants. Now you know. So if we look at naltrexone, we can actually see so many receptors and so, many so much variability amongst those receptors, all of a sudden we have to start thinking we can't standardize dose. In fact, we need to be more dose specific for these patients. And this is where, again, the compounding pharmacy comes in. If you send this off, and I've seen this on the internet, they'll go get 50 milligram tablets, they'll crush it up and throw it in a glass of water and be like, yeah, it should be good. How do you know your, how much do you know how much you're getting every single time? And how long is that drug actually going to be effective in that glass of water that doesn't have any preservatives or is necessarily not dosed appropriately? How much is the patient going to take? Some is good, more must be better. And that's not what we want to do. In fact, we want to be very discreet and very, um, very succinct and very precise in our dosing because I've seen variation in patients. Um, where we can give a small dose and have significant exacerbation of symptoms. In fact, we gave one patient 1.5 milligrams. She went to the hospital because she felt so bad. She felt like she, she in her words, says, I feel like I'm going to die and I don't know what to do. Um, within about six hours, it resolved, mainly because the dose has a set half-life. We initiated again at 0.1 milligrams, and she found that her dose was between 0.1 and 0.25 milligrams, and she actually had a profound effect on her overall health. Other patients, they titrated up to 0.1 milligrams because they needed less, and they feel great. Other patients are now sitting at 12 and 15 milligrams, so almost 100 times the dose of these other patients. So we cannot assume that 4.5 is correct because there's so many variations and there's so many receptors that may be involved in disease and there may be genetic factors and other drivers that may actually be responsible for how they actually come to it. So this is where Jay is going to jump in pretty quick. Um, we always suggest start low, go slow, titrate to patient response. Normally we're starting at patients at 0.5, but what we're seeing is patients that we recognize as having sensitivities, we actually start at 0.1. Common dosing, and I have to be clear, this slide when I present when I when I handed this one over, we've changed even since the beginning of June. Uh, dosing is now what we're seeing is 0.05 all the way up to about 15 milligrams in the low dose naltrexone world. Um, there's a lot more information that we're seeing on this that's now being published. I think the LDN Research Trust is actually changing their literature. They actually have dosing guides and they're extending it. Uh, I have a physician out of um, Dallas, Texas. Uh, Dr. Care, and she's actually dosing all of her interstitial cystitis patients between 10 and 12 milligrams, and it seems to be working. Many autoimmune disorder patients who we have seen are not sensitive to some medications can be pushing upwards of 15 milligrams in divided doses. 
pediatrics, you can actually start lower, titrate a little bit slower. What we're seeing is somewhere between two and three milligrams works for most pediatric patients to about the age of 14, and then doses change. Um, topically, 0.1 milligrams up to one, or sorry, 0.1% up to 1%, very, very commonly. And if the patient can't take it orally, we can give it sublingually. If they want, we can do eye drops. If they want, we can do transdermally. Um, we've also done things like topical administration to um, mucosal tissue, anything from oral mucosa to skin to uh, vaginal tissue to rectal tissue to help with anal fissures. We're compounders. We can make it. We can make it any way you want. In fact, we can make it any way the patient wants, which is more important because um, what we think would work for their patient may not necessarily work for that patient. And so it is important to see that dosing is variable, dose administration is optional, um, and, and, and sort of flexibility in giving the patients that uh, latitude to find what works best for them is how we can work best with compounders like Jay and his team. Uh, I do get this question a lot. Again, we're going to go back to dosing specifically for cancer. I'm going to be a bit more aggressive. There was a paper that I have to be clear that came from Dr. Zagon. He said the ultimate dose is between three and four milligrams. That his, is his optimal dose. Paul and Dr. Paul Anderson, he's discussed doses upwards of nine milligrams. More importantly, they both said the same thing, that this pulsate, pulsate therapy. Uh, so currently the, the paradigm is Monday to Friday dosing for active cancers. Uh, if interested, give um, after CBD. That's the best time to give. Um, and then some patients, some practitioners are saying, well, I don't want to give them days off. Um, the literature is all pointed and shown benefit of this pulsate, so I'm not going to go against the literature. Patients who are at risk of cancer, who don't currently have cancers, but have an elevated CRP and the ESR and maybe some other inflammatory symptoms, I would put them on one to two milligrams. Um, and see how they go. You can dose titrate up. I'm not going to say there is a set dose for them. If you have patients who have no symptoms and no concerns, and then you're just worried about it, but they're under the age of uh, 50, one to two milligrams, as long as they don't have side effects, they're usually pretty good. And then how do we write? I am going to leave this back to, to Jay. I'm stepping onto his toes. He's actually got some really good information on this, and I don't want to step into that. Uh, but I am going to talk about the monitoring very quickly. Any routine monitoring that you would currently do for that disease state, you would actually replicate and continue. The only other two that I would recommend is uh, inflammatory markers. If you can get them specific to that disease, there are cytokine panels that you can reach out for and get through specific lab tests. Jay knows who they are. And if he doesn't have that information, I'll make sure he has it. And currently liver enzymes. And the only reason I'm saying that is to cover your practice uh, there was a paper back in the 70s when a patient abruptly stopped drinking, their liver enzymes went up um, and the conversation went, is it the naltrexone? Um, and then cooler heads prevailed and said, no, it was the rapid discontinuation of alcohol. So that has largely been um, disproven, but it exists on the current monograph. So if you can get the liver enzyme panel and do that monitoring, I would recommend it just to be fully um, uh, protected. Clinically, look for the dose adverse effects. If the dose, if you see the, any of these, the dose is too high, decrease the dose, and that's easily done through dose titrations, especially with Jay and his team. Um, more, most of the time, these are the big questions that we get. 
Is it safe? Where is it from? Is it gluten-free? Is it soy? Is it, are you sure it's safe? Um, and by the way, do you know where it's from? And is, how is the pharmacy regulated when it comes to this? Is this legal? So let me answer all of those questions. Number one, the APA, API bulk is sourced from Europe. It is the highest quality and highest purity. It's actually the same um, producer that it sells to the uh, commercial manufacturer of the branded product. That's number one. Number two, safety. We've addressed this. There's so many studies that actually talk about this decreased side effect and this, um, or limited side effect profile, um, improvement of overall symptoms and decrease of other medications. Um, we can safely do this and initiate this. The only thing that we do not initiate it is in high dose or chronic opioid patients. We have to be a bit more cognizant of the limitations of dose where we see interruption of pain control. More importantly is how do we give it to the patient? And that's Jay's world. We, we're highly regulated in the pharmacy world. In fact, we have inspections not only by the regulatory state boards, but any state board that you are registered in outside of your home state, which I know Jay is. And number two, the FDA. The FDA not only inspects compounding pharmacies, but they inspect the facility to which bulk packaging, uh, bulk powder repackaging and distribution occurs. They have to be GMP compliant, and that's where we fit in. We provide not only education and, and training, but we provide all the bulk APIs of the highest quality. And it, that's what it comes back to, is it's, it's a quality position for not only the information, but also for the product that's being delivered. You're not going to tell people to go out and eat McDonald's every day. You're not going to tell them to buy the cheapest tires and the cheapest car um, when they're concerned about the safety of their family. We always look for the highest quality, and it's a balancing act. And that's kind of where I leave it back to Jay and his team about doing everything right, because they do. Um, when you have the level of accreditation and inspection and uh, thoroughness, high-quality training and service, it falls together and comes out with the best outcome for the patient. Because at heart, I'm chemistry, I'm immunology, but I'm still a pharmacist and I care about accuracy, precision, and the outcomes in the patient and partnering with the best providers. I know naltrexone fits. We just have to find the right dose and the right way to get the patient's dose. And that's where we are. So I know Jay has some comments and I think he's going to come on board and he's going to jump in. I'm going to have a sip of water so he can speak. So Jay, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Here you are. Sebastian, you're still the host. So if you don't mind changing the slides for me, I'd appreciate it. All right. So thank you very much, Sebastian, for uh, going over um, evidence-based uh, use of low-dose naltrexone. I'm just going to take two minutes and kind of uh, go over with you our compounded low-dose uh, naltrexone flex-dose tablets. Our flex-dose tablets are basically scored four ways. And if you don't mind switching the uh, sl uh, slide, uh, there we go. Perfect. So our compounded uh, flex-dose tablets, they're scored four ways that when you push the tablet in the middle, they break evenly into four quarters, four even quarters. And what this does is it makes it, you know, uh, a very flexible dosing for the practitioner and the patient. Hey, Jay, can you turn your mic up just a bit? Sure. There was someone that couldn't really hear. It does sound a little bit lower.
Okay. How about now? Perfect. Okay. So um, I'll start again. The FlexDose tablets are uh, kind of uh, uh, scored four ways that when you break them, uh, when you put your finger, a finger in the middle of the tablet, it breaks into four even quarters, which kind of allows for the flexible dosing, the tapering dose that Sebastian talked about. Um, it also makes it very affordable for patients because in many cases, you know, you're getting four doses out of one tablet. We actually compound the tablets with a prebiotic, which is good for your gut, and therefore it's free of all common allergens such as gluten, corn, and dyes. Um, we currently compound the FlexDose tablets in four different strengths. The most common is the four and a half milligram dose, where, you know, this is where the tapering schedule is it's very easy to guide the patient where they just basically start on a quarter of a tablet and increase by a quarter every seven days until you achieve the four and a half milligram dose. Now, after listening to, uh, you know, Sebastian's talk, you're wondering, you know, do you make anything higher or lower than what's presented there in the slide? We do make capsules, oral liquids, sublingual liquids, topicals, and other uh, different dosage forms too. Next slide. So one of the things in the beginning I talked about that we're an accredited pharmacy and our accredited bo uh, body is called PCAB or Pharmacy Compounding Accreditation Board, which sets uh, a set of standards and holds us to a standard much higher uh, than other um, non-accredited pharmacies. And one of the standards is to have a quality assurance program in place. And I'm sharing the results of one of our batches of now Trexone 1.5 milligram tablets with you to show you uh, we test our batches. It's within spe uh, specification. It came up at 103%. And I show you this just to get, you know, give you the confidence in the product that we put out. So it does start with where you source the original product from and how the compounding pharmacy makes it and then tests the product. Next slide. So pricing wise, you know, very transparent. Uh, we charge $75 for 90 tablets, which is equivalent to about $25 a month. A patient in many cases is paying uh, for one tablet and getting four doses out of it. And we also offer free shipping to new patients that are referred to us. And the next slide. So you're wondering how to go about order, uh, ordering the low-dose naltrexone. Um, in the follow-up emails that you're going to get in the next couple of days with the recording of the webinar, I'll make sure to include an order sheet that we have. If you could go to the next slide, um, Sebastian. We've kind of made it easy. It's, you have three easy ways to order the low-dose naltrexone. One is through the order sheet that you can fax to us. Uh, we obviously prefer that uh, you e-prescribe it through your EMR system. We're listed in your EMR system as the Compounding Center Virginia. You're welcome to call us on our direct line and talk to one of our seven pharmacists. And you can even text us on that line if you have any quick question. Uh, that you need answered right away. And next slide, uh, please. 
And lastly, you know, compliance is very important. Patients don't get better if they don't start their medications. And what we have done internally, we have created some programs uh, such as the auto refill program where patients who opt into this program, their refills are delivered at their doorstep, um, you know, when the refills are due. Uh, patients that start on the medications are uh, new to low-dose naltrexone. We actually reach out to them a week later and follow up with them to see if they're having any side effects or have any further questions. And lastly, you know, we kind of proactively make sure that we contact your office and the patients to make sure we coordinate the refills. They don't run out of refills and there's no interruption in therapy at all. And last slide uh, is, uh, I, I'll share with you my contact information and you, know, you see the states that we're listed and we can service your patients in. If you have any questions regarding Lotus naltrexone or methylene blue, please reach out to me. So this is the uh, part, uh, end of part of my presentation. I think we're going to move on. We're getting very close to eight and going over. I want to move on quickly to the question uh, Q&A section of the uh, webinar. So I know Brian okay. has some questions. Okay, Sebastian. The first one is, what do you think about using naltrexone to mitigate weight gain with second-generation antipsychotics? Ooh. <laughs> um, there's actually a lot of literature. There's a uh, commercial product called Contrave that's on the market. Uh, unfortunately, their their doses are mainly skewed to food uh, relationships and addiction. They they aggressively go up from eight to sixteen to thirty two to sixty four milligrams of naltrexone. Um, what we're seeing with low dose naltrexone at the same time, um, you know, we're seeing this anti inflammatory effect, but we're also seeing this satiety effect. So patients they call they call it push the plate away effect, um, you, even at those low doses. I'm full, I've had enough. But in that paper that I mentioned about the difference in NF kappa, it was also uh, noted that we see this improvement in uh, sense or insulin sensitivity. And so we're seeing type two diabetics almost have a better insulin response. And that's one of the issues that we see with type two uh, psych or sorry, second generation antipsychotics is this rapid weight gain and this sort of um, type two diabetes onset and metabolic syndrome. And so yes, there is actually some use. We're not worried about contraindications, but we're also seeing a mediation of mood at the same time. So is it beneficial? Uh, I don't have a paper to point you to, but what we are seeing in the literature says that a low-dose naltrexone protocol may not only mitigate, but also may improve overall efficacy of what you're trying to achieve. So yeah, there you go. That's the simple one. I wish I had a paper that actually had uh, the second generation antipsychotics because we've seen it and we're already seeing it, that that's what the patients are using. So there you go. Okay. Second question is a two-part question. How can, how can LDN be helpful with schizophrenia? Should LDN be considered for patients at high risk for schizophrenia? So again, going back to that um, sort of mood stabilization, there's a number of discussions just about uh, the rewiring of brain um, patterns and, and neuronal tissue. And so it's really complex. Um, I, I, I've been looking into this and I'm trying to, trying to link it. 
But what we're seeing is sort of, um, there's a number of issues about gut health, serotonin production, serotonin sensitivity, um, and that sort of balancing out in depression. When you're talking mm -hmm. about psychotic, psychotic disorders, uh, schizophrenia, uh, the mechanisms don't necessarily line up, but what we do see is a mediation of effect. Um, and again, I'm going to go back and I'm going to point to some of those papers that are talking about neurodegeneration and neuroregeneration. Um, and we're, we're still looking at that. We don't have a clear answer. The better question, again, goes back to, is it going to cause harm? No. Could there be benefit? At this point, we have to say maybe, but what we're seeing clinically is that addition and a stabilization. So we're seeing better efficacy in the medication interventions you're already using. So it's kind of like, how do I say no? But I can't say definitively that it's going to affect schizophrenia so much as we, we see that mediation effect. But there was a paper about it. I'm trying to remember where I put it. So I will send that to Jay and then he can, and then he'll send it forward to you. So if you reach out to him directly. Okay. And Jay, that was from Brent Anderson. I can probably send that to you too. Okay. Okay. Um, next question is going to be from Marina. Um, several of my patients have reported feeling really groggy, groggy in the morning when I have them dose at night, often just use around 1 to 1.5 milligram. Is this an indication of the dose being too high or something that may be transient? I often have them dose a bit earlier, like right after dinner versus just before bed or reduce the dose. Any thoughts on that? That's exactly what I would have suggested is you can push the dose earlier in the day. Um, you could even push it to first thing in the morning. And a lot of patients actually say, yeah, I actually get better sleeps and I don't have that grogginess in the morning. What we're seeing is these patients are kind of getting this endorphin rush, usually at two or three o'clock in the morning. This is the sleep disturbance pattern. Um, they're not getting the restorative regenerative sleep that, you, that we really want to see. So they're not getting the deep sleep. So they're waking up and it's just like, oh, I'm groggy. It's just terrible. So yeah, push it back to the morning and then let them sit at that dose for just a little bit longer and do your step titrations. But you're already on the right track. Make them take it earlier. They don't have that endorphin rush at two, two o'clock in the morning. So they don't wake up groggy. So intuitively, you're awesome. <laughs> okay, we've got another question from Alan. If patients are already on opioids, how do you administer LDN without blocking the opioid effect? So there, there's three paradigms to this. There's ultra low dose, there's very low dose, and there's low dose. Uh, the ultra low dose, this was a program that was launched uh, in conjunction with the makers of OxyContin at the time. Um, and they found that one to three micrograms of naltrexone, micrograms, enhanced the um, sensitivity of their OxyContin. And so we could get away with lower doses and we would stop dose escalation. Um, and, and that seemed to be working. The problem is you had to write two distinct prescriptions because you wanted one with uh, ultra low dose naltrexone and one without. So it just didn't get picked up. This was in about 1999 to about 2001 and then it just went away. Now we see that for escalating doses of opioids. The very low dose works from about 0.01 milligrams, so about 10 micrograms, up to approximately 0.1 of a milligram. And they're using this uh, to break patterns of sort of um, usage. And they're thinking like, oh, there's got to be this mediating effect. The problem is that we're not seeing the traction in decreasing the inflammation in these patients. So 
we're getting into the low dose world of 0.1 to one milligram. And the, the hard deck seems to be around one milligram in most patients that we can use naltrexone 0.1 to one milligram and it starts breaking patterns of addiction. And we start seeing this decreasing dose need and we start breaking things. Um, and this is, this is a, some fun terms I get to throw out there. Uh, it's called uh, opioid induced uh, hypersense or hypersensitivity. So opioid induced pain or this uh, in, in sort of an inflammatory response. There, um, we break that with use of this much lower, but still considered low dose. And it's, it's kind of in this weird position of 0.1 to one. Um, and patients just say, I don't need as much and my medication's working better. And I'm, I'm getting a, I'm, I'm starting to notice an improvement in my overall mobility and quality of life. So they start this decreasing dose. Many times, um, if we exceed one milligrams, we have this abrupt blockade of the opioid receptors and we lose pain control for about three to four days, unfortunately, and the patients kind of go spiraling very quickly. And so we have to be very cautious when we're approaching one milligram. Um, I have had a few patients who've gone up to 1.5 milligrams cautiously because they were very invested and they really want to maximize that dose um, of what they could get. In many cases, we've actually bridged some of their pain management once we get to the one milligram of naltrexone with other molecules, pain management molecules, and then we can start decreasing their dose of opioids. And once we've got them into that uh, low dose or PRN uses of opioids, we can then increase our naltrexone. So if you have a PRN patient or low dose opioid patient, you can safely go up to your sort of standard between three and nine milligrams of dose of, of naltrexone and still get some response. The PRN still works. It just has to be separated from the dose of naltrexone. That's it. Okay. His second part of that question is there are some patients who do better on higher LDN doses, like six to nine milligrams. What distinguishes those patients? Ooh, genetic factors, need factors, absorption issues, uh, sensitivity to the medication. There, there's 16 receptors and there's multiple genetic variations within each one of those receptors. Um, that seems to kind of, yes, like that's, that's the best way to explain it. Um, the literature, and if you look back at a lot of this literature, previously in dosing worlds, uh, 65 to about 70% would get an effect, 30% would not. Um, now that we're expanding this dosing pattern, we're seeing numbers really pushing upwards of 90 to 95% of response. So again, it's that individualized dose. Why do some patients need, and, and I can kind of point to, I can point to my wife. I love my wife dearly and she has no problems with this. Um, I can give her, as a pharmacist, we had to compound a lot of medications because if I gave her a standardized dose that you would give to a normal adult, it was just too much of everything. So we would compound a lot of the medications for her and she found that it actually worked for um, better. So, and, and full disclosure, my wife knows uh, progesterone. She's on uh, very low doses of oral progesterone because a, a standard dose that you would give over 50 milligrams, she's completely flattened for a day. Like she is just completely uh, groggy. She can't handle it. So we're getting down to 20 milligrams is an oral dose, 25 milligrams. And we found that that seems to work much better for her. other patients. We've seen 800 milligrams of progesterone. 
um, not my wife. And why? They just have a poor absorption effect. They have higher needs. They have a different uh, genetic profile. They have different receptor profile. And that's what we're facing with a lot of these patients with naltrexone is we don't know which receptor and we don't know which what's happening, but we knew we do see the modulatory effect based upon their specific dose. So that's where we go back to what's the dose for the patient. And Jay and I kind of go, yes, we'll find it with them. That's all we can do. I hope okay. that's, I know that's not clear and concise. What differentiates? Don't know yet, but we will. Give us a couple okay. of years. Next question is, how about patients taking buprenorphine and needing LDN? Ooh, again, don't exceed uh, one milligram. Very straightforward. I would initiate them on 0.05 milligrams. Jay's going to be like, oh, I got to make more here. Um, and then initiate and titrate very slowly. And if they start talking about, yeah, my pain's coming back, go back by that uh, last increment and hold there. Um, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's an, it's a, there's a very fine line with buprenorphine, very powerful opioid, really difficult to get patients off, but I've got a lot of doctors down here in Texas, down here in Allen, Texas, specifically that are doing some really cool work. And I've got a doctor up in Wisconsin who is doing some really cool work specifically with buprenorphine patients and naltrexone. Okay, next question is, can you administer LDN for cancer patients while they receive radiation and chemo? Obviously major legal considerations, but regarding safety. Um, so going back to the data, uh, we've seen this improvement in chemotherapy uptake, and there's absolutely no contraindications with radiation therapy. Uh, the discussion about the pulsate therapy was before the chemo and then do it off while they're getting their chemo. Um, that's not what Dr. Paul Anderson is saying. He's saying five days on, two days off, and you put them on and you keep them on and away you go and you get them on as fast as you can. Um, the, uh, there is no contraindication with any chemotherapy drug that is currently on the market. It is only contraindicated with opioids at high doses and, and chronic use. So that is, that is a very, very robust discussion, but we're seeing more and more oncology centers picking up uh, naltrexone and implementing it into their protocols. So, okay. and legally it, it becomes a discussion with the oncology team and it come, becomes a discussion with, with the patient. Um, GPs as well as oncologists are the ones who are prescribing this now. NPs, neuropaths or naturopaths, so. Okay. Next one is how quickly does LDN work on COVID? Um, <laughs> Your long COVID or COVID. So I'll, I'll take the COVID one. Um, again, it's not a, it's not going to cure COVID, but it's going to very quickly limit its spread. So the faster you can get them onto naltrexone, it's better to have naltrexone on board before they get COVID. Um, but we saw we saw resolution of long COVID in three months time frame versus 18 months as a standard. So that's the easy answer for acute COVID. Oh man, get them on 4.5 yesterday if you can. Um, I can tell you from personal experience, when I went to Vegas last year, um, someone coughed right in my mouth as I was walking past them. They turned their head and coughed. Uh, oh three days later, I was lying down in the Vegas airport. I couldn't function. Um, it was it was rough. 
uh, tested positive for COVID. I started naltrexone as soon as like I thought I had COVID. Um, three days later, I was back out working out in the, in, the, in the garden. So that's my personal experience. My wife ended up getting COVID from me. She was back at it in about two weeks, but she was uh, a little bit slower. So there you go. Most, I'm sure Jay has a million patients. Or, well, maybe not a million, but many who go, thank <laughs> God I was on, on it, so. Okay, next question is, my maternal grandfather died of scleroderma and my maternal great aunt and maternal aunt had rheumatoid arthritis. Should I consider LDN as a preventative strategy for myself? Predisposing genetic factors, uh, microbiome, stress, uh, those are all precipitating factors. So the better question is, you're, and, and again, I'm going to go back to that paper from 2009, um, pre-existing, pre-existing conditions, as well as familial history, um, those were all mentioned as saying like, look, this might be something that you want to take to prevent. Dr. Zalzala's um, paper that's going to be published is pretty much going to say, yeah, you should. So here we go. Um, I can't say that. It's his paper that's coming and I'm very excited about it, but clinically and anecdotally and from what I've seen over the last 20 plus years, um, it's certainly not going to harm you. You may want to consider, you don't have to dose up to 4.5 milligrams if you start feeling senses of anxiety or any concerns, dose down. Two milligrams will, will have a huge impact. It'll mediate a lot of the concerns and it will slow any sort of aging inflammatory response as well. So yes, that's your simple answer. Okay. And then someone wanted to know, you addressed this already, if they will get access to the video presentation. And I know Jay has a comment there. He's going to send it out uh, to a link. I've sent out a few emails to a few people, but yes, it'll be ready in the next uh, couple of days. Yep. Okay. Next question is going to be on pulsing treatment. Is that only for cancer? So the, the funny discussion is, um, do you want to give an LDN holiday? And we've actually had a few patients who, and now the, and compliance is always an issue with patients, but once patients start taking it, they're the ones who are like, yeah, yeah, I forgot my refill. Um, two to three days later, they're like, hey, I, I need my refill. I'm starting to notice my symptoms coming back. And that seems to be very, very common for these patients. Uh, the pulsate therapy of Monday to Friday is specific to cancer literature. All the other literature is chronic dosing. The occasional holiday every three months, if they miss their timing on getting their prescription, it's not going to harm them. Um, we've even seen patients who discontinue abruptly because of a surgery for anywhere up to two weeks and then just reinitiate at their same dose. So can you do it? Yep. Would I suggest it? Maybe once every three months, take a day or two off. But other than that, nope, every day. Okay. And we have our last question. Can you explain a bit about why using CBD prior to naltrexone is beneficial? Is that the same benefit not seen the other way around? And should there be a wait time for an optimal effect? Uh, the paper was from just a couple of years ago, and it actually saw, and, I, and I, I'm going to go back to the paper, is it, the combination was beneficial if CBD was before LDN or LDN was before CBD. They saw an improvement in that combination. The timing of it uh, wasn't discussed in the slides, and I would have to go back to the paper to tell you the exact timing, and you have access to the slides, so therefore you have access to the reference. 
But if you take just LDN, you there is a discussion about seeing an improvement. We see better efficacy across all other medications, um, but it was a pronounced difference when they when they did that stacking of CBD prior. So that's a, I hope that's I hope that makes sense. They didn't give a timeline between the two, but they did say it was improved for chemotherapeutics specifically. So that's that's the literature. So yes. Okay. Okay. Well, and the last comment was just thanking you for a wonderful uh, presentation. That was from one of the people in the audience. Was that Terry? She's very sweet. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And I know we've gone over time. I had a lot of information. Um, you will have the slides. Uh, Jay has all the references and any other questions that you come up with, even in the next, I don't know, two years. Uh, send them forward. And if, if he can't answer them, I will. And if, if one of his amazing staff members can't answer them, they know how to get a hold of me and they can get a hold of me usually within a couple of hours. Well, thank you everyone for joining us this evening. Appreciate it. And uh, I'll make sure to send out the slides and the recording in the next couple of days. Yeah.